Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. We are back for 2021 and of course joining me for our first episode back is Phoebe Watson. Hello! I know it feels like we're about a thousand days into 2021 but it has actually only been a month. (laughs) For us recording. For us recording. So it's kind of crazy to be still saying Happy New Year to people but like I said we took a break for January. It was well deserved and well needed. But uh, we are delighted to be back now, starting in February, to be back for another season of Risking Enchantment. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I think at this stage, Christmas feels like a lifetime ago. But I think for everyone, it was a time that was very mixed. You know, I think it was stressful, anxious, confusing, frustrating for a lot of people. We were also incredibly lucky that it was also a time where we did get to see our families, we did get to spend some time at home, and before Ireland's lockdowns came back into play full force, we did make it back up to Dublin. So we are now holed up together once again in the flat. We have been for the last month. We won't be seeing anything except our own lovely faces. (laughs) We're stuck together, you and me. There's no end to this lockdown. There is no beginning to this lockdown. You're getting depressing, stop it. (laughs) But yeah, so we are in Dublin together and yeah, I think it's definitely very interesting. I think a a lot of people have commented this time around that this lockdown has felt even harder and, you know. Yeah, I think January is an even harder month to go into lockdown than March. Yeah, I think so. And I think for a bunch of reasons. I feel like people are losing steam, all of those things. But it got me thinking about the first lockdown and I was reflecting on the sort of more community aspect of it and the sort of trends that everyone seemed to go through at the same time, notably baking sourdough bread and... Gardening. Gardening were the two that sort of like stood out to me that everyone took up. And I remember shops ran out of flour with people doing all of this baking and stuff like that. And, you know, I was thinking about this because Phoebe and I have been in a routine of every weekend picking a big ambitious recipe to try. We did a chicken and mushroom pie recently, which was... was so good. It was so good and it took so many hours to do, but it was actually genuinely worth it. So it's in the Jamie Oliver comfort food book. If anyone wants it, we would thoroughly recommend it. Um, You do have to make the filling like the day before, which feels like a massive investment, but it's definitely worth it. Definitely. It's definitely a two-day pie. (laughs) But it's been lovely to have that kind of cycle of planning out the food. We've done desserts. We've done main courses. We've done lots of different things. And obviously, this is coming off the back of Christmas as well. When we came back, it was still early in the new year. So that kind of festive feasting season. I feel like I haven't heard a lot of people talking about New Year's resolutions for diets this year. That might just be me, but I haven't heard a lot of it. Maybe we're just avoiding those people. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. But I think it's interesting. And as counterintuitive as it sounds, and I do apologise, I realise that by the time this episode comes out, we are about to go into Lent, which is not a time of feasting. It is a time of fasting. But as counterintuitive as that feels, I just had a sense that it might actually be a really worthwhile thing to talk about. What does it mean to feast as a Catholic and as a Christian? And 
how do we feast? And I think this time with all of the lockdowns, certainly Phoebe and I have been really missing that sense of community that, you know, having friends around, having a, like a social time together, serving people with food, like having that time of preparation and, and looking forward to giving them something that you've made. There's a real kind of absence of that whole component, which is so important to our idea of what it means to have a celebration and have a feast. Definitely. But like I said earlier, there was also some interesting developments in the last year with people maybe being at home more, having more time to cook, having more time to garden, that like reconnection with some of the more fundamental things rather than say going out to a restaurant for a celebration or going out for drinks for a celebration. Like there's in some ways more of a reinvestment in what more traditional forms of feasting and celebration might even look like. And yeah, being able to enjoy the fruits of your own garden. Yeah, I think that's a really big one that I feel like in this time, people, you know, there was even, like in Ireland, we also have Brexit as well. So this whole idea of disruption of food supply chains has come to the fore, this whole idea of like how fragile our kind of global system is. And and, and I think on an individual level, there's been a lot of people reinvesting in in their communities, in their own spaces, in their own gardens. And I think from that, we can learn something really profound about Christian feasting. Yeah, and I think just to tie it back in with Lent, we are also in Lent preparing for that major Christian feast, which is Easter. Yeah. So I think we're going to tie that in a bit in case you're feeling like we're way off topic. Yeah, absolutely. Although I know this is coming out on the Friday before Ash Wednesday. So if you're listening to this on Ash Wednesday, maybe wait a day. We are going to be talking a lot about food. So (laughs) (laughs) it's better to listen to it on Pancake Tuesday. Yeah. Then you get to feast. Exactly. So exactly this is it. We're going to a season which starts with a big feast and then we have a long fast interspersed with smaller feasts, which Mm -hmm. are our Sundays. And then at the end, we have an enormous feast. And I think this is really important. I've written about the importance of fasting before. Um, I have an article on Call to More, which I wrote last year, which is about why we fast. And I'll link those in the description box below. I find that a really interesting topic, but I feel like you're really missing a key element if you don't also understand why we feast. And from a Christian perspective, It doesn't make any sense to fast if you don't have a feast at the end. Yeah, definitely. It's just absence of hope if you're not feasting at the end of it. Yeah. Like, heaven is a feast, not a fast. (laughs) Exactly. And while fasting is good in in and of itself, it is also good because it allows us to truly feast. And I think that's something that we've come across in our research for this episode. We're going to be pulling a lot from a book called In Tune with the World by Joseph Pieper. It's quite a famous Catholic commentary on feasting and the nature of it. There was also a really great article called Why We Feast a Matter of Life and Death by R. Jared Stout. And we're going to be pulling from lots of different things, but they had some really interesting things to say about why feasting is actually, for a society that struggles with with all kinds of issues, even with like obesity or um, food wastage or all of these things that feel like they should mean that we are able to feast, we're actually lacking the key to actually having a feast that is fulfilling and life-giving and gives praise to God. Yeah, despite us all having so much food available. Yeah, it's so interesting how it goes against what you might first think. 
Yeah. And so I've got a quote here to start us off from the article called Why We Feast, A Matter of Life and Death. And it says, Secularism poses a fundamental challenge to festivity because within a secular culture, our lives do not point to God, but to ourselves. We do not find our joy in being a creature of God, but fear him as a threat to our freedom. We crouch in anxiety and turn to intoxicants to cover over this anxiety. We can't celebrate because we don't have anything to celebrate. So we create false festivals of consumerism and shallow distractions to point us away from what is worth celebrating. Christmas has become a flashpoint of true versus false festivity. One festivity affirms that we have a life worth living and celebrating because God has become man, whereas the other festivity turns us rather to a sentimentality expressed in superficial narratives and entertainment. Yeah, that's so true. In the book, people also talks a lot about on that vein of like how work is related to festivity and that you have to have a reason to give up work which is why you need that element of like god-centric festivity because otherwise what are you giving up work for Mm, that's really really interesting yeah yeah so the structure for this podcast we decided to throw in another aspect to this which is that in our many readings and favourite books in pretty much every one of my favourite books basically what we're saying is we have to talk about books we have to talk about books and in pretty much every single great book at least in my opinion has one great feast or big like meal or food moment at least one at least one and I think they're so etched in my mind like in some ways those like fictional feasts are more real to me than actual food that I have eaten (laughs) (laughs) and I think it's interesting the way that food is so important I think it's like there are examples of this in every kind of genre of fiction and even like non-fiction travel writing and things like that but there is something that's very integral to both like children's literature and fantasy literature which has this real emphasis on feasts and eating and communion around food yeah and we don't always mean feasts by like the typical banquet of like masses and masses and masses of food that comes into some of them but also just that element of community and sharing and like generosity with food yeah absolutely and so what we've done is we've pulled out some of the aspects of feasting that point to God and the ways in which true feasting points us to God and to kind of elaborate on what feasting truly means and use literature to highlight and illustrate those things. So we're going to take an example from most of our favourite books. Like we said, we're kind of dwelling on the books that you've heard us talk about a million times. I don't think we're going to scare you with anything too new in terms of the the books that we've chosen. We did have to cut out a couple that we decided were too complicated to explain to you. Yeah, so these are all of our favourite books. You can expect Tolkien, you can expect Narnia. (laughs) Yeah, and just pull out some of those great moments of food and feasting and fellowship center those as as ways of understanding how Christians should and can feast in a way that gives glory to God. Yeah, and hopefully maybe give you some ideas for your own feasting in the Sundays and Lent and in planning Easter, that we're in a very strange time where we can't necessarily feast as we would want to, but Mm -hmm. hopefully there's something in here that will lend to that. Yeah, and I think I've got some really nice quotes here on why literature and food are so important and how they do really help us connect to the reality of it. So I've got one here from an article called Go Deeper Food in Children's Books, which says, 
While the food we eat in reality can't change our size or enchant us, it still has the power to transport us, to remind us of the people who first made it for us or the places we've eaten it before. So perhaps it's not surprising whether disgusting or delicious, unusual or everyday, the food we read about in children's books tend to stay vivid in our memories and perhaps shaping some of our adult tastes and responses. A passage featuring a sumptuous feast, a magical sweet or cordial, or a simple comforting meal might make adult readers yearn for a taste just as hungrily as it did when they were children. I love that. I think the main reason we drink ginger beer is too much famous fire with children. Because you have to have lashings of ginger beer if you're going on a picnic. So showing that literature can really impress upon you the ways in which you interact with food or the ways that food plays in your imagination or your your whole life. I think we're going to start off with like our first theme and, and point about feasting and its ability to connect us to God. And our first topic is a feast as the continuation of the liturgy. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea because in some ways the community aspect of a festival can seem so secular in comparison to the liturgy yeah but really they're so interlinked when done properly so this is from the same article of why we feast a matter of life and death the liturgy must extend beyond the normal daily and even weekly prayers offered to god to shape the movements of the year and the major events of culture and life festivity therefore prolongs the liturgical celebration and translate it into familial and social life. We see the foundation for Christian festivity in the Acts of the Apostles. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they partook of food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all people. Festivity extends liturgy with the meal, which becomes an image of the Eucharist, praising God with food and drink and through fellowship. The music and dancing continue the praise of prayer, and when rightly ordered, become an expression of the overwhelming joy of life, expressed in voice and through the body. The toast is the clearest expression of the affirmation of festivity, as everyone raises a glass to honour each other and the many blessings received. I think it's such an interesting idea of having it almost, especially because these articles in these books talk a lot about the centrality of Sundays as being a feast day. So the idea of the ripple effect from the Sunday Mass, that you would have that Sunday Mass and then have rippling images of it spread out into the rest of your day so that everything that you're doing has this echo or this image of the liturgy that you've just attended. Yeah, it actually really reminded me of what I would have grown up with as a teenager in the Anglican Church every couple of months would have had a community lunch together after the service. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't necessarily think of that as a feast, but it was. Yeah. There is that like extension of the liturgy into community, and it also gave you that chance to talk about the deeper things, because you just come from that place. Absolutely. And even when you were just reading it there, it also impressed upon me how how this aspect really guides us in the way that we celebrate feasts in that it should be absolutely joy-filled it should be fun and not necessarily solemn in the way that maybe we think about liturgy but it shouldn't ever be debauched or overly gluttonous or any of those things because 
it should be a reflection of the liturgy. Yeah, that phrase, rightly ordered, is so important. Yeah, and I think, you know, some of the articles we were reading were sort of contrasting it with a more Nietzschean approach to feasts, where he was saying that the restrictions of something like Christianity put on you prevent it from being a real feast, because a real feast is debauched. And he was wrestling with something that, obviously, we wouldn't necessarily agree with his outcomes, but what he's kind of saying does actually help us understand the way that we approach feasts, which is that... We are truly ourselves when we are free to be moral. And feasting and celebrating is not apart from that. Yeah, and I think it's also really important that it doesn't have to be stingy. Yeah. Like, being avoiding gluttony doesn't have to mean stinginess. Yeah, absolutely. That there is a space for true festivity and true celebration, but that it is rightly ordered towards God. Definitely, yeah. And and that God shares in this kind of festivity with us. Because ultimately, what we are doing, like you mentioned, is preparing for the eternal feast in heaven. Like, we should be getting ready for that by the way that we celebrate it here. I mean, how many times do we hear heaven described as a banquet in the Bible? Exactly, that's it. It is like their favourite image. (laughs) Precisely. And so... The book that we have picked for this example is, of course, we're starting with Narnia. We have to start with C.S. Lewis. It's very important. Well, I mean, the only thing I would say is that it would have been very easy to have this just be a C.S. Lewis comparison episode. We did contemplate it. Because the Narnia books are so full of food. It is ridiculous. But there are too many other good examples of food, so we're limiting ourselves to two. Exactly. So for this first one, we're we're going to Prince Caspian. And maybe, Phoebe, you want to introduce this? Sure. This is the feast that comes at the end when they've just had this great romp through the country with Aslan, delivering them from the oppressors. And a rightful king has been reinstated in the country, and they're suddenly all free. And this is the feast that Aslan presides over, mm-hmm. which is partly why we chose it, because it's got that very central presence of the Christ figure in leading the feast and moderating it. Then three or four of the red dwarves came forward with their tinder boxes and set light to the pile, which first crackled and then blazed, and finally roared as a woodland bonfire on midsummer night ought to do, and everyone sat down in a wide circle round it. Then Bacchus and Selenius and the Maenads began a dance, far wilder than the dance of the trees. Not merely a dance for fun and beauty, though it was that too, but a magic dance of plenty, where their hands touched and where their feet fell, the feast came into existence, sides of roasted meat that filled the grove with delicious smell, and wheaten cakes and oaten cakes, honey and many-coloured sugars and cream as thick as porridge and smooth as still water. Peaches, nectarines, pomegranates, pears, grapes, strawberries, raspberries, pyramids and cataracts of fruit. Then, in great wooden cups and bowls and mazers, wreathed with ivy, came the wines, dark thick ones like syrups of mulberry juice and clear red ones like red jellies liquefied, and yellow wines and green wines and yellow-green and greenish-yellow. Thus Aslan feasted the Narnians till long after the sunset had died away, and the stars had come out, and the great fire, now hotter but less noisy, shone like a beacon in the dark wood, and the frightened telemarine saw it from far away and wondered what it might mean. 
The best thing of all about this feast was that there was no breaking up or going away, but as the talk grew quieter and slower, one after another would begin to nod and finally drop off to sleep, with feet towards the fire and good friends on either side. Till at last there was silence all around the circle, and the chattering of water over stone at the Ford Baruner could be heard once more. That's just so beautiful. I love it. I love that image of them all dancing and then their food coming up. It's great. And I think there's so much in there, like even the fire, we can think of the incense that we burn at mass, mm -hmm. the movements, the, the dance-like coordinated movements, this, the bringing forward of food and the, the offering to Aslan and that whole sense of it being rightly ordered around Aslan. Yeah. I wish we had more feasts like that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that is particularly good. We'll be waiting a while if we're waiting for a dance that magically produces food. <laughs> True. But even like a bonfire night like that. Yeah, that would be amazing. Though I will say, it is definitely stretching imagination to think that everybody could be warm around the one fire. <laughs> Unless it's a particularly warm night. I suppose I could give them that. <laughs> I'm sure wherever Azan is, it is nice and comfortably warm. Exactly. It's because it's winter here, so I'm thinking of that one and being like, oh, I still feel cold. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's such a beautiful description and shows how something that is centred around Aslan, or Christ in our case, doesn't mean a lacking or kind of standoffishness. Yeah, there's no, like, stifling or everyone standing on ceremony with each other. Mm-hmm. But there is still great dancing and great joy. Absolutely. that's And it's so great. And I think it's interesting when we read about your favourite bit, the, the dance that produces food. And obviously that is a very magical, simplified version of our version of creating food. But there is still something there which goes into our second aspect of feasts, which is that done well, a feast should connect us with the land and yeah. with the gift of creation and God's creation to us. Well, even in that, it's the creatures of the land, the representation of the river and the land itself mm -hmm. that are coming forward to give this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is one of the things that we're really missing in our modern day is that there's a real disconnect, disconnect between the food that we eat on the table and any conception of how that food came there. Which is why we were talking about gardening earlier. Absolutely. You know that it's certainly not the case that I think that everyone needs to go and own a farm and run a small holding or own an allotment. Yeah. But I think we need to face up to the reality of the food that we eat yeah. in a way that is very foreign to a lot of modern consumers and lifestyles that... Even stuff that we've been working really hard on, like knowing where our food comes from and what's in season at the moment. There's a great speaker on this. He's got a book called Food and Faith. His name is Norman Wiersba. Um, but he also has some really great talks on YouTube. Again, I'll link those. He talks a lot about the connection of food and faith. And he talks about how knowing how our food is made gives us an appreciation for the gift that is creation and the humility that we experience in knowing how difficult it is to produce food and how it's not something that we, it, it doesn't just come at the snap of a button or if you turn on your computer and order it online and it shows up to your door. They have fostered a culture in which we are so far removed from the idea that the land that God has given us produces food, which is both nourishment in that it is what feeds us to live, 
but also is delicious, that it's not just functional, that it's actually a gift of, of something that is delicious. And he has a, this line that food is God's love made delicious. I love that. Which is so interesting. And we were saying you can extend, with all aspects of a feast, you can extend that out. Like music is God's love made audible. And our friends are the experience of God's love made present to us in another person. That Yeah, but it's so powerful that food like you said, being something that we need to stay alive mm-hmm. is so delicious. It's not like the air that we breathe that we don't notice coming in and out. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, in the book Food and Faith, he has this quote, the goodness of creation, its delectability, but also God's delight in its flavours cannot really dawn on us so long as we reduce food to a product of our own hands or turn it into a commodity for the purpose of power and profit. Food is a gift of God given to all creatures for the purpose of life's nurture, sharing and celebration. When it is done in the name of God, eating is the earthly realisation of God's eternal communion building love. That's incredible. Um, and then he goes on to say again about gardening and obviously like you can garden flowers, you can, but th- that connection of actually growing things and being connected to the way that we eat and celebrate. And he says that gardening is never simply about gardens. It is work that reveals the character of humanity and is a demonstration of who we take ourselves and creation to be. It is the most practical site where we can learn the art and discipline of being creatures. Here we concretely and practically see how we relate to the natural world, other creatures, and ultimately to the creator. We discover whether we are prepared to honour these relationships with our work and celebration or despise and abuse them when and how we garden gives expression to how we think we fit in the world through the many ways we produce and consume food we bear witness to our ability or failure to receive creation gratefully and humbly as a gift from god it's not that i'm saying that everything that we eat has to be like only one step from out of the ground like or that everybody has to have a garden (laughs) yeah or anything like that like but there is something that is integral about knowing what that food is to begin with and not just reducing it to like a line in a menu that has no context and has no further nothing to tell us about God's creation yeah I think even knowing how like what he was saying about the difficulty of gardening, yeah. the, how the different changes of the weather affect it and how that extra little bit of sunshine has brought out the flavour of the tomatoes or the courgette and mm-hmm. enhanced it in a way that you don't get with the like mass-produced greenhouse food as well. Absolutely. And so the point of this is kind of that it just shows how difficult it is to truly feast in this day and age because... the food that we typically eat is so drained of nutrients it's manufactured so that it has a long shelf life it's um, deliberately designed to look uniform even just things like that that we we're missing a key part of what is the gift of food when like so many other sort of commercial factors have to take precedence in the production of this food before it even gets to us yeah and I think we also really missed that excitement of something coming back into season mm-hmm. yeah that if we've been eating it all along you don't go oh that's the first of that season of this yeah you know you you don't think oh isn't it amazing that this strawberry is here when you know you have strawberries all year round yeah. and I think for our sort of 
key example of this in literature, we turn to the mice. (laughs) (laughs) And sort of the two examples of sort of mice stories. And I think the reason for this is because obviously if you're telling a story which is anthropomorphized animals, obviously, typically that's a more sort of naturalistic setting. They don't have sort of big mechanized farm machinery. You're you're conveying a story which is very rudimentary in the ways that it, it interacts with the land. And so obviously we come to Brambley Hedge. <laughs> How could we not? And, you know, I think Brambley Hedge is one of those great children's books of just the it's it's just stories of a small community of mice doing very simple things and of course food plays such a big part of this and their whole little congregation is centered around the store stump where in the autumn story it says um, it was a fine autumn the blackberries were ripe the nuts were ready and the mice of Brambley Hedge were very busy every morning they went out into the fields to gather seeds berries and roots which they took back to the store stump and carefully stowed away for the winter ahead the store stump was warm inside and smelled deliciously of bramble jelly and rising bread and it was nearly full of food oh that's making me hungry (laughs) And we've just eaten. I know. But that sense of like, A, it's a community effort. They're doing something together. And B, that like if they don't take in this food, they just won't have food. There's not a supermarket that they can ring up. There's not a, a you know, they can't go online to order it. That this is, this is the food of the land that the land has produced and they're taking care of it so that they have it for the months ahead. Yeah, it's that necessity of gathering in the gift that they've been given and mm. really taking it in and appreciating it. Yeah, absolutely. And then for an example of an actual feast in it, in the spring story, which centres around the young Wilfred Toadflax's birthday, where they throw him a surprise picnic, and uh, they're all discussing this, and it, it shows how everyone brings something to the picnic and brings what they can and the work of their hands. So it says, I'll see if I can find some preserves, says old Mrs. Eyebright. Shall we bring a tablecloth called the weavers who lived in the tangled hawthorn trees? Poppy Eyebright from the dairy promised cheeses and Dusty Dogwood, the miller, offered a batch of buns. Mice soon began calling at the store stump to collect clover flour and honey, bramble brandy and poppy seeds and all the other good things needed for the picnic. Mrs. Krusty Bread baked a huge hazelnut cake with layers of thick cream and Wilfred's mother decorated it. Mrs. Apple made some of her special primrose puddings. And I just love that there's that sense of the people who work at the dairy bringing their produce or recipes that have been passed down to through generations. Like this is Mrs. Apple's special primrose puddings that you would know that you would go to her for those. Yeah, and it's that sense of the whole community bringing something and that if one of the community was missing, you wouldn't just miss that person, but you'd miss what they'd bring as well. Yeah, that there's like a sense of it being a collective experience and one which is really tied to the people that they're with and the land that they're on. And that when you have those two things, you can really celebrate with the space that you've been given in the world. Definitely. Uh, Just to touch on another example very briefly, I know Phoebe is a huge fan of Redwall. Another (laughs) mouse story. I grew up with Redwall, you grew up with Brambley Hedge. Exactly. And Um, I will say my brother also grew up on Redwall and was devastated that I never got around to reading it. Shocking. (laughs) But a lot of the Redwall books, which is centred around this abbey of mice, when they have a victory or a celebration or a harvest festival, there's this 
great description of all of the mice of the abbey coming together and making all of these things. Mm -hmm. And then all of the neighbouring community, like the otters and the moles, Mm -hmm. who are also coming to the feast, bringing their contributions to it. And then you've got this, like, great celebration at the end that everybody has put the work into as well. That it's that sense of community preparation and then community rejoicing. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's, it's so present in the Bible. Like, one of those lines that we say over and over again and we don't even think about it is oh taste and see that the lord is good definitely like taste (laughs) is the first one there before you even see it you taste that the lord is good that's so cool isn't it and i think it's really interesting what you were saying there about the celebration and the gratitude because that goes into our our third point which is that truly ordered a feast is worship of is a form of worship because it gives right praise to God for the gifts that he has given us. And so like we were saying with the land and the food, that could be the literal food itself, but also for everything, that like everything that comes together in a, in a feast is is something that is giving glory to God. I have an article here called The Lost Art of Feasting by David Mathis, and it says, The Bible is replete with the goodness of food and the holiness of feasting. God in his goodness made his creation edible. He made trees pleasant to the sight and good for food, Genesis 2.9, and created us to eat his world. Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food, Genesis 1.29. Then after the flood, he extended the, the gift to eating animals. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, Genesis 9.3. But distinct from the kindness of God in everyday food is the special grace of a feast. Feasting is not first about the food. It is foremost about the Godward celebration of some specific occasion together. Good food and drink in abundance come in alongside our corporate focus to accentuate the appreciation and enjoyment of God and his kindness. The heart of the feast is not the food itself, but the heart of the feasters. A true feast is bigger than the food, infinitely bigger. The centre is God and his greatness and grace towards us in Christ. I love that. That line of God and his goodness has made creation edible. Mm-hmm. It's just beautiful. It's so wonderful. Yeah. In in some ways, this very much follows on from the idea that the feast echoes the liturgy because, I mean, the word Eucharist is thanksgiving. So yeah. in some ways, it's kind of obvious. But The supper of the lamb. Exactly. But that if we are trying to feast truly, we have to be giving thanks. We have to be giving thanks for the, the, the people that we're there with. I mean, what, what a sort of kind of inward focused version of, of feasting would it be to just be interested in what we were getting out of a celebration? Yeah, I think that's where we've really gone wrong in a way, in our culture. But at the moment, we're going to read from another really Christmassy book. (laughs) Yes. Can you tell we're still mentally a little bit stuck in Christmas? I'm sorry. Our our next episode is going to be very Lenten appropriate, so don't worry. But uh, we are going to jump to A Christmas Carol, because how could you not? I think, I'm not sure we actually have any quotes from it here. I will also point out that Hayley Stewart wrote a great 
article which was called The Sham Practice of Christmas, which also went into a lot of great detail about A Christmas Carol and how Scrooge is the antithesis of someone celebrating a feast. Yeah, even that tying back to what we were saying, what I was saying about work earlier, that mm. Scrooge is renowned for begrudging his employees even the day off for Christmas. Yeah. And that begrudgery is very much in contrast to the scene of the Cratchit family dinner, which is what we're going to talk about. Absolutely. So I'm going to read that section. It says, Such a bustle ensued that you might have thought a goose the rarest of all birds, a feathered phenomenon, to which a black swan was a matter of course. And in truth, it was something very like it in that house. Mrs. Cratchit made the gravy, ready beforehand in a little saucepan, hissing hot. Master Peter mashed the potatoes with incredible vigour. Miss Belinda sweetened up the applesauce. Martha dusted the hot plates. Bob took Tiny Tim beside him in a tiny corner at the table. The two young Cratchits set the chairs for everyone. There never was such a goose. Bob said he didn't believe there was ever such a goose cooked. Its tenderness and flavour, size and cheapness were the themes of universal admiration. Eked out by applesauce and mashed potatoes, it was a sufficient dinner for the whole family. Indeed, as Mrs. Cratchit said, with great delight, surveying one small atom of a bone upon a dish, they hadn't ate it all at last. Yet everyone had had enough, and the youngest Cratchits in particular were steeped in sage and onion to the eyebrows. But now the plates were being changed by Miss Belinda. Mrs. Cratchit left the room alone, too nervous to bear any witness, to take in the pudding and bring it in. Oh, what a wonderful pudding, Bob Cratchit said, and calmly too, as he regarded it as, a, as the greatest success achieved by Mrs. Cratchit since their marriage. Mrs. Cratchit said that, now the weight was off her mind, she would confess she had her doubts about the quality of flour. Everyone had something to say about it, but nobody said or thought that it was at all a small pudding for a large family. It would have been flat heresy to do so. Any Cratchit would have blushed to hint at such a thing. And then as they're, they're closing out the feast, it says, There was nothing of high mark in this. They were not a handsome family. They were not well-dressed. Their shoes were far from being waterproof. Their clothes were scanty. And Peter might have known, and very likely did, the inside of a pawnbroker's. But they were happy, grateful, pleased with one another, and contented with the time. And when they faded, they looked happier yet in the bright sprinklings of the spirit's torch at parting. Scrooge had his eye upon them and especially on Tiny Tim until the last. I love that. The idea that no Cratchit would ever dare, like, no hint that it might be too small, that that generosity of spirit which stretches what's there mm -hmm. is so central to that Thanksgiving. They were contented with each other. It's that sense of, of course it was good enough for them because the person who made it, had loved it when they were making it and the people who would put aside enough money to buy it had loved them when they were doing that. And that they would far rather be there than feasting in a grand house without those that they love. Yeah. I think there's a line in Nehemiah that says better a dinner of herbs with people you love than a feast with people who hate you. Um, Absolutely. I love the like lavishness of it as well that it is this family scrimping and saving to splurge on this goose and on like feeding everyone yeah and even the concept because it was bought at the time with in a goose club where you would put aside money every week so that you could afford the goose at the end which shows you how much 
there was sacrifice that goes into creating such a feast and it was all the more special because it came from a place of want and of course in no way do I want to suggest any kind of glamorizing of poverty or anything like that like this has been such a terrible year and so many people have lost their savings and their jobs it's not that I am trying to rose tint that but there is something also interesting about our modern society where so many of us are so amply fed all the time and have such a super abundance of everything that we could possibly need at any time at the touch of a button and I think it's another way in which we really struggle to have the true experience of feasting because every day of the week could be a feast or at least a version of a feast and one that makes an actual feast stand out all the less. Yeah I think like with Lent it's how if we give up something like chocolate for that time, we come to Easter and then you appreciate the chocolate all the more because you haven't had it and yeah. because you've been denying yourself it. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's a real lesson in living modestly, which doesn't mean not enjoying food. Or, doesn't mean starving yourself. Or starving yourself, but just trying to sort of live in a way that reflects that there are times for feasting and there are times for fasting or even just not feasting that that our aim is to to that our aim in life is to encounter god and not just to satisfy every one of our bodily wants as they come up yeah and i think also our world really shuns the idea that being deprived of something you would appreciate it more after i think we yeah. really struggle with that but that you can also give up something for the sake of appreciating it. Yeah. Greater at the end. Absolutely. And I think that goes a huge way into our understanding of theology of the body and relationships between men and women and all of those things that the idea that you would give something up in the present so that you can have a more full experience of it further down the road. There is a quote in The Lost Art of Feasting which says, we've grown dull to the wonder of ample food and drink through constant use and overuse. When every day is a virtual feast, we lose the blessing of a real one. When every meal is a pathway to indulgence, not only is fasting lost, but true feasting as well. That we've grown dull. Very powerful. We're sort of overly sated. And it shows you the real opportunity that Lent is. And I think this is why I felt like it was it was appropriate to have this as a topic going into Lent. Which is to focus on our minds on why it is good to fast. Yeah, and I think even going back to what we are saying about that connectivity to the land. Mm-hmm. That... Before Lent would almost have come naturally because it was the time of the least food before the first harvest of spring. Mm-hmm. But yeah. now we really have to work to make that a reality. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really, really good point. And I think the Cratchits just exemplify that so well because I think it's such a beautiful expression of, of love to sacrifice something so that you could have something lavish to express for love. Yeah, nobody doubts that that family loves each other. Exactly, yeah. And I think we had, we're not going to spend too much time on this one, but we also wanted to bring in, I mean, how could we not mention the feasts of Hogwarts and Harry Potter? Uh, and I think it's also in a similar way to the Cratchits, I think we're, we're looking at the very first one, which shows a kind of moving of Harry from a life not necessarily of like deprivation but certainly never of generous love of overflowing yeah. lavishness he's coming from quite a sad place yeah to 
this great welcome of Hogwarts. Yeah, and it's that sense of coming home. And the reason he's coming home is because it, he knows he is being loved in a particular way. I know it's a school, but it is an expression of love to throw this big feast for the students and to feel like this is for them and is for them to help them encounter each other and get to know each other and create this kind of family experience. Yeah, I love what you said earlier, that it means that the students are worth putting a feast on for. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, this isn't just somewhere where you learn, it's also somewhere where you grow in love. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, do you want to read the quote? Yeah. Harry's mouth fell open. The dishes in front of him were now piled with food. He had never seen so many things he liked to eat on one table. Roast beef, roast chicken, pork chops and lamb chops, sausages, bacon and steak, boiled potatoes, roast potatoes, chips, Yorkshire pudding, peas, carrots, gravy, ketchup, and, for some strange reason, mint humbugs. The Dursleys had never exactly starved Harry, but he'd never been allowed to eat as much as he liked. Dudley had always taken anything that Harry really wanted, even if it made him sick. Harry piled his plate with a bit of everything, except the humbugs, and began to eat. It was all delicious. When everyone had eaten as much as they could, the remains of the food faded from the plate, leaving them sparkling clean as before. A moment later, the puddings appeared. Blocks of ice cream in every flavour you could think of. Apple pies, treacle tarts chocolate eclairs and jam donuts, trifles, strawberries, jelly, rice pudding. As Harry helped himself to a treacle tart, the talk turned to their families. And I think what we're really kind of missing in that is also the whole hubble around that yeah. food of these students getting to know each other and like the old students welcoming the new students in mm -hmm. and like that building of family around it. And like, I also love that we, the, the feast that you actually kind of missed before that is on the train when Harry has his moment of generosity where he gets to provide a feast mm -hmm. and then he enters into this space with all of his fellow students and then he's given a feast. Definitely. And yeah. That's really the, true. There's that real sense of that you need to have moments of over-the-top expressions of love to really like convey the true depth that's always there in the ordinary days as well. Um, there's a quote from Pieper from his book that we've been referencing in Tune with the World. He says, a festival is essentially a phenomenon of wealth, not to be sure the wealth of money, but of existential richness. Absence of calculation, in fact lavishness is one of its elements. I love that, that like absence of calculation, that like mm -hmm. overflowing of generosity to do as much as you can for someone. Yeah, in order to foster an, an environment of love and security. I have a, an article which is about, actually about the food in Narnia, and then they quote this other food writer called MFK Fisher. And it, so it begins saying, Fisher claims... Our three basic needs for food and security and love are so minced and mingled and entwined that we cannot straightly think of one without the others. And then it goes on to say, C.S. Lewis's scenes of eating beautifully illustrate this reality. His meals often emphasise the attainment of security and love. We see security when the beavers struggle to keep the four Pevensey children safe from the white witch's secret police by cozening them in their lodge and treating them to a home-cooked meal. I love that. Yeah. I love the image of the beavers sheltering the children. 
Beautiful. Yeah, that's actually a great point. That's going that's going right into our next point, which is that uh, feasts provide, as you've mentioned, a rest from work, but also a a moment of rest and pause in the anxieties, the tribulations, the travails, the fears of life, and gives over to a moment of celebration, which in turn is food for the road and helps us keep going and revives us, you know? I think we were, this in this year, as much as we were stressed and hoping where we going to get home or like, what is Christmas going to look like this year? I think there was a lot of people like us who were looking forward to Christmas because it marked a time in which we could focus on taking a step back from all of these cares. Yeah, a time of security and revival. Yeah. And at least for me, it meant a time of being able to hide from the pandemic for a while. Yeah. And like, just batter down and pretend nothing else was happening. I, I described it as pulling the drawbridge up on the world. And that we need these times where we step back from the conflicts in the news, the conflicts in our work, the conflicts of our hearts, and allow ourselves time to recuperate and that really plays into what Christ teaches us about the Sabbath and what you were saying about um, not just working all the time and that God asks of us to give up our working time in order to praise him, but also so that we ourselves can benefit from that praise. Definitely, yeah. And so that example, I have of course chosen the Fellowship of the Ring. I was saying that the first, you know, the, the three books are also split into two books themselves in each case. So the first book of The Fellowship of the Ring is essentially an almost endless sequence of feast, travel, feast, travel, feast, travel. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just like a group of people on a journey that is frequently broken up by notable feasts. Is this why you love it so much? <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, it starts off with the birthday party, then you've got like a, the passage of time, and then there's another birthday party, and then they go out on the, the road. And I love that section from Hobbiton all the way to Rivendell. I just love that whole sequence. You meet the elves, you meet um, Farmer Maggot and his bowl of mushrooms, you meet the, the other hobbits in Crick Hollow, and they have another celebratory feast. But the one I've picked out is the one that comes next, which is after their ordeal in the old forest, they meet Tom Bombadil. And it's a section that so many people find confusing or baffling. But the thing that really resonates with me in Tom Bombadil is the description of that sense of rest and recuperation and a moment to step back from the fears of your life. And it's so comforting. And, you know, it begins with Goldberry saying, fear nothing for tonight you are under the roof of Tom Bombadil. And then Tom says, is the table laden? I see yellow cream and honeycomb and white bread and butter, milk, cheese and green herbs and ripe berries gathered. Is that enough for us? Is the supper ready? And then it goes on to say, they came to a low room with a sloping roof, a penthouse it seemed, built onto the north end of the house. Its walls were of clean stone, but they were mostly covered with green hanging mats and yellow curtains. The floor was flagged and strewn with fresh green rushes, and there were four 
deep mattresses, each piled with white blankets, laid on the floor along one side. Against the opposite wall was a long bench laden with wide earthenware basins, and beside it stood brown ewers filled with water, some cold, some steaming hot. There were soft green slippers set ready beside each bed. Before long, washed and refreshed, the hobbits were seated at the table, two on each side, while at either end sat Goldberry and the master. It was a long and merry meal. Though the hobbits ate, as only famished hobbits can eat, there was no lack. The drink in their drinking bowl seemed to be clear, cold water, yet it went to their hearts like wine and set free their voices. The guests became suddenly aware that they were singing merrily, as if it was easier and more natural than talking. I love that. Yeah, and there's that real sense that in the feast and in the festivity, there is an element of even simple things like washing, resting. Yeah, that reassurance that when the feasting is done, you will have a place to sleep. Yeah, and that real kind of rejuvenation. And you've just come from such a sense of horrors. They're fleeing from the ring wraiths. They're scared and lost in the woods. They come across the, the old man Willow and they, the constant oppressive fear. And then to come to this moment of rest. Yeah, when she says you can shut out the night. Yeah, absolutely. And I yeah. think even in normal years, I feel like that's my experience of Christmas. Or like if I go home for a little while, that celebration that is at the centre of those moments is also the cause for me to reconnect with the people who love me the most and and provide that sense of easing of burdens. And I think that's so important when we look at feasting and following the path that the church has laid out for us for feasting. I have another quote here from Why We Feast, which says, The appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed feasts are these. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. God frees us from the cycle of bondage to work and enables us to experience his holiness breaking into and shaping time. The liturgy must extend beyond the normal daily and even weekly prayers offered to God to shape the movements of the year and the major events of culture and life. I love that. The idea that it's that whole shaping of life as well as the weeks. Yeah. And that it gives us a rhythm and like an advance and a retreat. Yeah, that sense of repetition that you can rely on the fact that Christmas is going to come so you just need to make it to Christmas or that sense of Lent is going to end and it's going to end with Easter. Yeah that you have something to move towards. Mm -hmm. And it gives you the strength to do Lent by knowing that there's an Easter. Yeah and also by knowing that it's not just all sacrifice that there are those Sundays in between that give you the refreshment along the way. Yeah. It's very much, to me, it really reminds me of C.S. Lewis talking about, like, generally about the pleasures of this, of this world and the encouragement to take those joys as, like, stops along the journey, like rest houses. Mm -hmm. They're not places for you to stay the whole time, but they're places of joy where you are refreshed to move on again. Absolutely. That's a really good point. And that it can't all be feasting. Yeah. That they are supposed to embolden you to keep going. Feasting forever gets like gets stale in this world. Yeah. And so I think as we're kind of we we've got one or two few more points to make, but we're kind of coming to the end. It's a good time to circle a background to Narnia to take 
an example of what it looks like to do feasting badly. Mm. And I mean, is there a better example of this than Edmund and his Turkish delight? That whole theme in the book comes with that great quote which says, There is nothing that spoils the taste of good ordinary food half so much as the memory of bad magic food. I love how it's not even... It's the bad magic food, but the memory of the bad magic food. Yeah. That that holding on to what has come before, mm-hmm. which I think I sometimes find myself doing with like one celebration of Christmas. If I'm thinking back to another one and trying to recreate it, mm-hmm. sometimes like like you can lose the whole thing because you're trying to recreate a past memory rather than allowing the current one to come. Absolutely, that's a really really good point. So. Phoebe, do you want us to tell you, as our resident Narnia expert, what does Edmund get wrong? Yeah, I was really thinking about that. And for me, at least the bit I could really understand about Edmund was I knew quite a lot about the sugar rationing Mm -hmm. of World War II, that he was coming from this place of deprivation that when he asked for Turkish delight, he's asking for this massive amount of sugar Mm -hmm. from... A kid who probably hasn't had sugar for a year or two or three or mm-hmm. like only very small doses of it. Yeah. Um. So it is very much a much greater indulgence than we think of it yeah. as. But should we read it first and then talk about what Yeah, happened? absolutely. Yeah. But the moment it touched the snow, there was a hissing sound and there stood a jeweled cup full of something that steamed. The dwarf immediately took this and handed it to Edmund with a bow and a smile, not a very nice smile. Edmund felt much better as he took a sip of the hot drink. It was something he had never tasted before, very sweet and foamy and creamy, and it warmed him right down to his toes. It is dull, son of Adam, to drink without eating, said the queen presently. What would you like best to eat? Turkish delight, please, your majesty, said Edmund. The queen let another drop fall from her bottle onto the snow, and instantly there appeared a round box, tied with green silk ribbon, which, when opened, turned out to contain several pounds of the best Turkish delight. Each piece was sweet and light to the very centre, and Edmund had never tasted anything more delicious. He was quite warm now and very comfortable. While he was eating, the queen kept asking him questions. At first, Edmund tried to remember that it is rude to speak with one's mouth full, but soon he forgot about this, and thought only of trying to shovel down as much Turkish delight as he could, and the more he ate, the more he wanted to eat, and he never asked himself why the Queen should be so inquisitive. At last, the Turkish delight was all finished, and Edmund was looking very hard at the empty box, and wishing she would ask him whether he would like some more. Probably the Queen knew quite well what he was thinking, for she knew, though Edmund did not, that this was enchanted Turkish delight, and that anyone who had once tasted it would want more and more of it, and would even, if they were allowed to, go on eating it till they killed themselves. But she did not offer him any more. And I think there's a couple of things really wrong here. Yeah. One of the first things is that it's this magic food that's coming from a drop on a cordial, which really brought me back to what we were saying earlier about like knowing where your food comes from, and mm-hmm. that, like chain of events whereas this is just conjured yeah but what's also really striking is the lack of sharing yeah a he's not eating with the queen 
the queen is feeding him, but there's no, like, he doesn't even go, oh, do you want a piece? Yeah. Kind of common courtesy. But also, I don't know if you've ever tried to eat a box of Turkish delights, but the idea of eating a whole box by yourself without even thinking that you might share it Mm. is mind-blowing. Yeah. Like, he has three siblings. Yeah. Imagine putting three pieces in his pocket to take home for yeah. his three siblings. It's that he doesn't even think of that. Like, it'd be one thing if he thought that he would do that and then got caught up in the eating of it by the compulsion. Yeah. But it doesn't even occur to him, which is really sad. Yeah. And then I think there's an element of, like, obviously gluttony, but showing you how sort of an oversating of yourself can lead you into into further sin because he's so obsessed with what he's doing and pleasing his own appetite that he doesn't notice what the queen is doing about asking him all these questions. Yeah, he doesn't notice that he's just betrayed his sister and his sister's friend, mm-hmm. that he's also being extraordinarily rude in front of a queen. Yeah, that it's so instantly a, an obsession and an, a, like an, a disordered desire and obviously that doesn't play out in exactly the same way in our world, but that it sh- it shows us the version of feasting gone wrong for us, Definitely. which in turn shows us where it goes right. I think it's really interesting when you contrast that with C.S. Lewis's other descriptions of food, which are so much more homely and communal, and even when they're decadent, there's still a, an element of modesty to them in a certain way. Yeah, there's still an element of them having come from the ground and not from the witch's white cordial. Yeah, and I because I love the contrast with the tea that Lucy has with Mr. Tomnus, and it really was a wonderful tea. There was a nice brown egg, lightly boiled, for each of them. Note that it's for both of them. And then sardines on toast, then buttered toast, then toast with honey, then a sugar-topped cake. And when Lucy was tired of eating, the fawn began to talk. He had wonderful tales to tell of life in the forest. I love that. And I think what I was saying about the rationing earlier, Mm. both Edmund and Lucy are coming from this place of want. Apparently there was a rationing on eggs at the time limited to one per person every second week. Mm-hmm. Um, that, so these aren't things that were readily available to her. This isn't what she was used to eating either. Mm-hmm. But this is the shared meal with the fawn, and you can really sense like the homeliness of it, and him like putting it all together. Yeah. Um, and she's listening to him. Yeah, that's and, really true. Yeah, and like obviously, if you know the story, you know that this is also kind of there's an element of this which is sinister, which is that he's supposed to be trying to lure her away to give her over to the queen, but that this experience of sharing food and communion with her convinces him that he can't do it, and so you see the wholeness of this experience leads him into virtue rather than into vice like Edmund. Yeah, and that they've really formed a bond between each other. Mm -hmm. And also just to indemnify Lucy from the obligation to share, because she's sharing with Mr. Tomlis already, Mm -hmm. you can never expect her to like take a slice home for her siblings because that would be taking from what Mr. Tomlis is already sharing. Yeah. Rather than what has been given over. Yeah. And also, I mean, I know there's the sugar top cake, but I think they, even in rationing, they would have been a little weirded out if she had come back through the wardrobe and said, I've brought you an egg. <laughs> or I brought you sardines on toast. <laughs> or the butter dripping down the side. <laughs> Whereas Turkish Delight is very transportable. A bit sugary, but... Yeah, yeah. 
for sure. And we read a really great, I think this was a, a dissertation called Nourishment, Delight and Fellowship, The Purpose of Food in the Chronicles of Narnia, which says, but the Chronicles also show us that the potential food has to make us sick in body and soul, eating or growing, quote, at the wrong time and in the wrong way, as Aslan says, causes misery and despair instead of joy and delight. For instance, the witch's face appears deadly white in book one after she unlawfully takes and eats an apple. And Edmund learns all too well in book two that food and drink, no matter how delightful, if produced in hate and consumed in greed, can have a sickening influence on one's stomach as well as a corrupting influence on one's integrity and rationality. That's so cool. Produced in hate and consumed in greed. Yeah. And I think that really encapsulates what we were saying. And so we're going to move on to our last example. If you, I, I hope you guys aren't too hungry after listening to all of this. Maybe you sat down with a, a cup of tea and a biscuit. But actually our last example is maybe a slightly unexpected one. So we're going to talk about sacrifice and generosity and how that relates to a feast. And we've touched on it a little bit already when we were talking about the Cratchits and putting aside money and sacrificing so that you can have this greater good, which is the feast. And we also talked about the generosity aspect of it in terms of the lavishness and like say in Hogwarts and in throwing this big feast for its students. But I think as Christians, we can even take it one step further and look at how a feast can be something that is something that we give even if we don't receive and the example of that is in Little Women which opens very famously with their their Christmas breakfast they they come down to their Christmas breakfast they're all ready to eat and they're Mar waiting for their mom yeah and then Marmy comes in and she says I've just been visiting with a house in the neighborhood and they have no food will you give it to them and it's so beautiful to see them rise to that challenge yeah, I was just realising, like, a year ago that we were talking about Little Women. Yeah, that's exactly it. Our first one back after Christmas was Little Women, so this is very appropriate. But it says, They were all unusually hungry, having waited nearly an hour, and for a minute no one spoke, only a minute, for Joe exclaimed impetuously, I'm so glad you came before we began. May I go and help carry the things to the poor little children? asked Beth eagerly. I shall take the cream and the muffins, added Amy heroically, giving up the article she most liked. Meg was already covering the buckwheats and piling the bread into one big plate. I thought you'd do it, said Miss Mrs. March, smiling as if satisfied. You shall all go and help me, and when we come back we will have bread and milk for breakfast and make it up at dinner time. And then it goes on to describe the impoverished situation that they're bringing this food into and and how big the eyes stared and the blue lips smiled as the girls went in and it's this really heartbreaking scene of the poverty but there is this real joy and beauty in giving this feast and so it says das ist gut die engelkinder cried the poor things as they ate and warmed their purple hands and at the comfortable blaze the girls had never been called angel children before and thought it very agreeable especially joe who had been considered a sancho ever since she was born that was a very happy breakfast though they didn't get any of it. And when they went away, leaving comfort behind, I think there was not in all the city four merrier people than the hungry little girls who gave away their breakfasts and contented themselves with bread and milk on Christmas mornings. That's loving our neighbour better than ourselves, said Meg, and I like it. I love it. It's so beautiful. 
Yeah, really powerful. Obviously, they're coming from a place where they know they're going to get dinner. Yeah. But there is still something so beautiful in what would have been one of their few occasions for feasting and giving it away and having that love of giving it to other people. Definitely. I love Amy's move of taking the thing that she most likes and giving it away. Mm -hmm. There's none of that, oh, I'll just take one for myself, which would be so easy to do and justify. Yeah. Yeah, or we will take the we'll take these things, but they don't need cream and muffins. Yeah, like, <laughs> they just need good solid food. Yeah, and I think that's so tied to how Christ wants us to approach feasts ourselves and and sacrifice. Like it's the first fruits that we offer. It's the unblemished lamb that we sacrifice. That it's the best of not the like dregs. Exactly, and when we give that to God we receive more and and so in true festivity there is an element that is actually of sacrifice of not clinging to the world and in some ways like it's a bit counterintuitive but if you think of it if you're working for this food all the time it makes more sense to hoard it and eke it out as much as possible all the time and never have a feast but to be truly grateful for it means to take that leap of faith and say no I am going to have this feast and I'm going to do it for the glory of God. And through this form of praise, I shall expect that he will also continue to provide for me. Yeah, it's very counterintuitive to the mentality of the world, Mm -hmm. like to the mentality that we slip into. Yeah, absolutely. Against this hoarding tendency, against this practical, like that that line from Absent in the Spring that we, we... quoted a couple of episodes ago of a world that counts the cost of everything yes yeah, instead this like lavish generosity and i think there's also a big element of trust there mm-hmm. that in throwing this feast you are trusting that the food will still last until the next harvest comes yeah absolutely uh, like i said i hope our listeners haven't been too hungry we did helpfully record this right after we had dinner but yeah i, I just love all those descriptions we hope this gives you some inspiration to look forward to for Easter, as mm-hmm. well as motivation for Lent, maybe. Yeah, exactly. And take the opportunity of fasting to reflect on what it means to feast. Definitely. And don't forget the Sundays of Feast. <laughs> Very important. <laughs> so we have come to the end of our episode. Mm-hmm. Before we go into our sort of usual questions and rounding up moments, I just want to give a shout out. So I would like to let our listeners know about a new magazine which is being started by Greg Daly who has been on this podcast several times and is just a really fantastic writer and he's been doing an enormous amount of work coordinating this new Catholic magazine. It'll be specifically Irish Catholic but I think it will be of interest to Christians and Catholics anywhere. It's called Levin. You can find it on Instagram, you can find it on on Twitter, and the first edition of it, it's a digital magazine, so you'll be able to get it anywhere, but the first edition is set to come at the start of April, so do be sure to check that out. We'll be definitely mentioning it again in coming episodes. Very exciting. So now, Phoebe, tell me, in all the time since our last episode, what have you been enjoying? I'm going to go on the food-related theme Mm -hmm. and say the Alice in Wonderland ballet. Wonderful, yes. Because we, in our extended Christmas celebrations of January, Mm -hmm. made a point of setting aside a couple of nights where we watched ballet screenings 
and actually made a little bit of an event and a little bit of a feast of it ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think Alice in Wonderland is also one of the stories that have a lot of food in it that we haven't talked about. Yeah. But yeah, it was really good. Highly recommend. Absolutely. Uh, My recommendation is on a similar theme, along with screenings of ballets. We've also been making a big effort to get into more classic movies, movies from the sort of 50s and 60s and onwards. It's one of those things that I've always been meaning to watch more of. And when I do, I always enjoy it. But then in some ways, it it can be a little bit hard to access. Yeah, we've had to put a little bit of thought into how we get them. Yeah, exactly. So we've been watching a couple of different ones and I've enjoyed all of them. But the one I'm going to say specifically that I really enjoyed was High Society. It was very good. Grace Kelly and Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra. I was not expecting it to be that good. It was honestly a 10 out of 10. I just enjoyed it from start to finish. So that was what I enjoyed. That was another one of our cosy evenings in. We are having endless cosy (laughs) evenings in. There's very little else to do. (laughs) But at least we're making the most of them. Exactly. So as always, thank you so much for listening. It is great to be back. I've been planning lots of episodes. I can't wait to record more and I'm really happy to be back and I hope that you're happy to see this podcast popping up in your subscription feeds again and obviously as always share it with your friends tell us what food passages we missed yeah seriously if we're missing some great feasts of literature in this episode please like put them in the comments there was a couple we left out we had one from the wind in the willows pulled out yeah definitely let us know if there's any really great ones another one was the bfg where they have the big breakfast the big breakfast in buckingham palace Mm -hmm. That one's amazing. So do send us any more that you can think of. And we'll be back in another two weeks with another episode. Goodbye. Goodbye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.